Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. everybody. This is Steven Siegel, your host at the New Books Network and New Books in History. Uh, today, we're speaking for New Books in East European Studies with Dr. Diana Kudai-Birginova. She is a political sociologist and the author of a new book called Toward Nationalizing Regimes, Conceptualizing Power and Identity in the post-Soviet realm. This is a book published by the University of Pittsburgh Press in 2019. Welcome to our podcast today. Oh, thank you for having me. It's actually 2020 when it was published. Oh, 2020. Yes, sorry. We're, we're much more recent. Um, so I just wanted to say a few words about Dr. Kudai-Bergenova. She is a political sociologist and she studies different intersections of power relations through concepts of state, nationalizing regimes, and different ideologies, the subject of the book. She's trained as a sociologist at Cambridge and is currently a research associate on the leading UK Global Challenges Research Fund grant compass that's based at the Center of Development Studies in the Department of Politics and International Studies at the University of Cambridge, UK. Uh, It's an ambitious project, and it deals with the study of Eurasia from Belarus to Tajikistan. And Dr. Dr. Kudai-Bergenova's research is dealing with community engagement, that part of the project, uh, which includes sociological research and public outreach and local engagement. Um, You may know her from her previous book uh, publications. Her, Her previous book includes Rewriting the Nation in Modern Kazakh Literature, published by uh, Lexington Press. Uh, And this is a book which deals with subjects of her interest, modernization, nationalism, and power in 20th century Kazakhstan. So I just want to start with a general question for our listeners, um, since this book is about nationalism and Latvia and Kazakhstan. So could you tell us how you got interested in doing all of your research, including your field work for the book? Yeah, so I was born in Kazakhstan just before the collapse of the Soviet Union. And basically, as a kid, I grew up through these processes of uh, defining and rebuilding and what was considered rebuilding the nations in our states. And um, sort of I didn't really think about my identity or something some people would call ethnicity until like um, later teenage years, because I was born in a very multi-ethnic family. Uh, my grandma was my hero and she never sort of, you know, um, sort of fallen back to these categories of identification. And she spoke a number of different local Central Asian languages and she didn't really like, you know, separate people by, by the ethnicities. So, um, and as I was growing up, of course, I went through my educational um, stages and then uh, at some point I ended up in Spain. So studying Spanish and uh, I was really happy to to get a degree in Spain as well. And um, I ended up in the Basque country. And obviously, it's a very different part of Spain. 
Wow. And um, <laughs> all of my knowledge of Spanish was basically, um, you know, tested when I got into a subway for the first time and I saw all the writings and I thought, um, I don't know that language. And obviously it was Basque. So while I was studying in Spain to do a degree in cultural studies, I was actually really fascinated with, with what's going on in in the place where I was living, in, in Bilbao for that matter. And I thought, wow, you know, nationalism is very interesting. So uh, gradually while I was doing the cultural uh, classes and sort of post-colonial theory classes, I started reading more about nationalism and started getting interested in, in sort of, uh, you know, categories of power, which inevitably brought me to sociology uh, and introduced me to Bourdieu, Baudrillard and Foucault. So, and from that, basically, I was, I was sold. I thought I'm, I'm going to do uh, nationalism and the study of power. It's so interesting and how and why people uh, really are willing to fight forward um, or for something that, that, that they care so much about. And when I came back to Kazakhstan, it was just logical that um, I would probably do it in, in my own home country uh, because it is, a, you know, it is the, the case of, of a very interesting nation building and nationalism movement. And I thought uh, that's a great case. So when I ended up in Cambridge, I started doing uh, my sociological studies precisely on uh, nationalism and nation building. And then, yep. Yeah, I, and I see a reflection of, of your sociological interests all through the book. It, it's an interesting path that you take to eventually get to the comparison of Latvia and Kazakhstan. So could could you talk about the method that you develop for studying fields and rules and power elites? It sounds like C. Wright Mills a lot. Um, and then, you know, sort of what led you to a comparison of those two countries in particular, Latvia and Kazakhstan. Yes, and that was very important to find a comparative case. So in the beginning, I mainly focused on, on Kazakhstan, and that's what the Rewriting Nations, uh, Rewriting the Nation came out from, because I was really interested in sort of unravel that history behind uh, what led to the building of contemporary Kazakhstan that I got to know as, 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 a, as a kid and as a person who came from there. And then for me, it was really important. And I felt like, you know, in order to illustrate this better and in order to come up to some uh, point where you can conceptualize further, you need to see um, how, okay, there's one scenario of how this can develop and then there should be another scenario. And how can I understand and sort of see the differences and driving forces that led to that? So, of course, there was a very logical understanding uh, since the very beginning of my project that it, uh, it had to be comparative. And I was looking for the case actually for... Um, it was before the start of my PhD. I spent the whole summer in the library just reading up um, everything um, that I could find on, on sort of the Soviet Union and on the different republics. And I was really trying to find the case that fit me because I thought it should be on the former Soviet uh, Union because it's such an important and it's not only interesting, but it's also a very um, sort of, it's, it's the space and history that can offer so much to the study of nationalism that is I feel still that we only like, you know, unraveling of what, what happened and what's going on right now is sort of this post-Soviet transition. So for me, it was very important to find the case within this sort of Soviet realm out of the 15 republics. And um, I just got really fascinated by the Baltic um, history in general. And then Latvia, uh, as I described in the book, and that was one of the explanations of why, uh, it had a very similar demographic um, composition of the population where they had also like Kazakhstan, they had a large uh, group of so-called Russian-speaking uh, communities um, sort of migrating to Latvia, making it their home. Uh, it is a bilingual country, it is a bilingual society, but there were very different approaches to how uh, sort of navigate these differences, both ethnic, linguistic, and about this otherness when it comes to nation building after the, uh, the Soviet Union collapse. And then I was really perhaps... Um, I thought it was really interesting that uh, there were these language inspectorates. And this is something that completely drew me to, to the Latvian case, that in 1993, 1995, uh, there were these cases of official committees or language inspectorates, as they're called, would go around uh, uh, Riga. And they still did when I did my fieldwork in 2000s. And they would um, basically, you know, on the spot, um, ask people stuff in Latvian. They would be testing. And if you could not speak up to, to a particular level of the state language, because Latvian is the only state language in, in Latvia, then you would be fined. 
And um, in my when I went to, to Latvia, obviously in the beginning I spoke Russian, and that's how I found a great network of people who, who are Russian speakers, and I was actually placed uh, in this uh, location in Kengarak, in the Rayon, as we can call it, uh, the district where there is still a lot of Russian-speaking um, sort of as you can call it, migrants, Soviet era migrants. And a lot of them actually were saying that um, they were still afraid of these language inspectorates. And it was actually almost like two decades after uh, the initial studies that I read were conducted. So I just thought it's, it's a very interesting um, specificity of how, this, uh, how different nation building policies work, worked out and how they, you know, um, sort of, and how people experience that. And, um, and, for example, in Chapter 4 of the book, where I talk about Russian-speaking uh, minorities, and I call them lost in translation, um, I have an, sort of an excerpt of the interview, which was much longer, with a woman who failed the language test three times, and she tried to learn Latvian so hard, but she couldn't. And I thought it's like, you know, these kinds of stories and struggles are very interesting of how you want to fit in with a specific understanding of what is the nation, but you simply cannot. Because uh, obviously of different contexts and structures of why this happens, but then you're still persisting to do so. And I thought it was really, really interesting sort of conceptualizing what is nation and how do you, how, how can you fit into this nation? So that's why Latvia to me yeah. was an interesting case, but also it's, it's, it's a very different um, uh, case politically from Kazakhstan because it is a democracy, it's a European state. Uh, and I thought it would be a great comparison, comparison to sort of provide how this model of nationalizing regimes uh, work. So I hope to sort of, you know, push it forward. Yeah, I, I want to talk about that a little bit more in, in the interview and in light of the surprise departure of, of President Nazarbayev as well um, in 2019. But, you know, even in the 1990s, the, the consolidation of this kind of personalized regime, which you differentiate from a kind of cult of personality or cult of the ruler, I think it was extraordinarily important to trace the changes in uh, parliament and the constitution and, and the law of the first president, I think it was 2000 in Kazakhstan. Um, but I, I want to come back to that a little bit later on. Could, could you give us an idea of how you decided to organize the book? I, I know you have five chapters and there are many chapters in which you include the word regime or nationalizing regime, which seems to be a very important concept to you for the organization. So how, how did you structure the book and make that make those decisions? So yeah, the, the aim really of the book is sort of to provide the, the framework and to introduce nationalizing regimes as the way we can analyze different power, uh, power struggles and also power processes in, in, in these different states and societies. So as I say in the beginning, it's not only, you know, the case of Latvia or Kazakhstan that we can analyze this through, but you can, you know, and I'm planning to do that with other states further on, maybe like, you know, and I think Russia would be a very good case to study that as well. Within in, And then we can find out whether it's a personalized or ideational regime, and that would be actually very interesting to see. Maybe at different stages, it is a different type of regime. Um, and then the way I structured it is that, of course, I wanted to introduce different... Um, context of how and why it is important. So that's what the chapter, the first chapter is really talking about and sort of trying to be both conceptual and historical in a way to explain why this is important. In the second chapter, I talk mainly about the discourses and what are the ways that, that uh, different categories of meaning are produced, because this is what nationalizing regime is really all about. It's about controlling and producing the meaning. And then through this control and production, uh, the elites are struggling for the power. And that's the argument I'm trying to, to make. And then in the third chapter, I talk about sort of the mechanisms of how then control happens and how uh, the ruling elites are trying to uh, subvert any other opposition, whether ideological or, um, you know, sort of contesting any, any, from any party, even if it's a winning party in the, in the parliamentary elections, as in the case of Latvia. And sort of I show how this mechanization then of power struggle works. Uh, in chapter four, I really look into, and chapter four and five are, are very similar in the way that they look at what happens beyond the elites, sort of what happens to the people who are not part of this elite field. And in chapter four, I talk about, uh, again, Russian-speaking uh, peoples and sort of also uh, Russian parties that they called in, in, in Latvia and sort of all sorts of movements and politicians who are involved in that. And in chapter five, I look in, into a larger spectrum of just people or populations in the country, regardless of their ethnicity and how they respond to nationalizing regimes. So, um, yeah, and, and to go back to your previous question, which um, 
where he talked about sort of why I'm using sociology and, and Mills quite a lot, and, and I think he's very influential in the way I'm thinking about constructing this argument, is that my, my main aim was to sort of highlight the mechanisms of power. And then um, I hope what comes through is that these mechanisms of power are done by elites and regimes that they, that they construct. But, and then they use specific discourse. In our case, it becomes nationalism. In other cases, it can be something else in different periods of time. But they use nationalism um, as the way, as sort of the battlefield for, for these mechanisms of power struggles. Um, if it was not nationalism, it was, if it was, for example, something else, the book would be basically about uh, that type of different discourse. But for me, it was very, very important to navigate and show as to how the power struggle happens, what are the mechanisms, and who rules. Because as I say in the, in the introduction to the book, that um, while there are a lot of different frameworks in the way we can understand how nations are built in this region, uh, it's rarely, it's like, you know, it, it's very rare to find something that tells you actually how it's done and what is the mechanism in detail, sort of like, you know, um, what happens and why the discourse doesn't change for the past 20 or 30 years. Why is it so dominant? So for me, it was the question that really bo- uh, bothered me in the beginning. And I wanted yeah. to find an answer to that. Yeah. And, and I want to I want to focus on the, the different cases now, because I, I think in the kind of research that you did on competition between elites or, or maybe even a dominant ethos of elites and, and counter elites, there's so much ambiguity and, and fragmentation, as you say. So let's take the case of Kazakhstan. Um, so it, in the Kazakh case, what is it that allows elites to form in a kind of way that they're identifying with the ordinary people, these power groups or even clans. I'm not sure clan is the right word, but it, you know, there are the mayors, let's say, of, of Astana and, and Almaty. What can you trace sort of like as a sociologist, but also historically, what what made these groups or clans so opportunistic or so Powerful. How, how do you how do you conceptualize that in Kazakhstan? Yeah, and I, and I basically talk about how um, and the big, biggest difference between these two cases is the um, how people sort of enter the elite field, right? How do you become an elite? Uh, in Latvia, it can be done through the elections because it's a democracy after all, and and you can form a party or become a party member, and then you it depends whether you can get elected or not into a specific uh, municipality or parliament. And in Kazakhstan, um, I'm, among other scholars, also pushing for the argument that it's more of a selection of the elites, right? Uh, a pool, and then the selection happens based on the, on the uh, telos or idea connecting everybody, uh, whether they are loyal to the president, um, the first president, Nursultan Nazarbayev, because the way that the field of power elites is constructed in Kazakhstan is very different. Um, the field itself is constructed by the uh, sort of guiding idea that you have to be loyal to the president. It's very hard to find among the existing elite in Kazakhstan who are still in power, somebody who is openly against the president. It's almost impossible to find anybody like that or against the idea, against the figure of the first president because even though he resigned, he still occupies quite an important symbolic and I would say also active political role in Kazakhstan nevertheless, even though we have like, uh, currently a, a very different president, um, second president, Tokayev, uh, but nevertheless, it's important in order to be within that elite field that you are loyal to Nazarbayev himself. Whereas in Latvia, that idea is very different. It's the idea of being loyal to the Latvian, sacred Latvian nation, quite ethnicized uh, discourse of that nation. And if you don't follow that, tell us in that idea in Latvia, then you're definitely not allowed to specific actual power. And that happens to um, the, the parties that I'm discussing in Chapter 3, the, the ones that are sort of trying to find an alternative way uh, to this ethnic Latvian uh, idea or discourse. And in Kazakhstan, it's more about the loyalty. That's why I call the Kazakh case the personalized nationalizing regime and Latvian case the ideational one. And you have this um, in chapter two, moving on to the comparison as you develop it, a chapter called The Archaeology of Nationalizing Regimes. So how, how do these power elites manage to exclude and push out alternative Forms of discourse. You use the word sacred um, in many cases, but given the the relative, I don't know, ease of, of comparing the demography demography of the two countries, mm-hmm. but what is it that allows 
elites once in power, if they're conservative or nationalist or right or far right, what, what allows them to, to exclude citizens? How, how, do, how do they draw those lines? Well, yeah, and in a Latvian case, I think it's it's historically is very important uh, that legally, uh, the uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, legally uh, there was this precedent that um, everybody who was not a descendant of citizens of pre-war, pre-1943 Latvia, uh, basically were not given citizenship and they became non-citizens. And at that time, it was more than 25% of the population. And then a lot of the key uh, legal uh, decisions like citizenship law of 1994 or the language law of 1998 that, again, were amended later on because there were a lot of uh, criticisms and complaints about these uh, crucial laws in Latvia. Even though they were amended after, afterwards, still at the, at the crucial moment of um, sort of building the foundation to the new state and to the new nation in the 90s was done in almost uh, pure absence of the others, right, of, of the alternative or Russian, as you want to call it, Russian party. Is it, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but is it mostly the Russian speaking minority that you're talking about that these, those who are excluded or there yes. others? There were obviously a lot of uh, Baltic Russians who were still citizens of the pre-war Latvia, but there were still, I mean, compared to, to the population in 1991 or in the 1990s, there was still, I mean, like not um, accounted to as many of the Russian speakers that were in Latvia at the time. So the 25% of people uh, more than a quarter. I mean, actually, it was more than twenty five percent, or more than a quarter of population was basically completely cut out of of these political decisions. And then, of course, that allows to sort of you know, as as soon as you can cement the specific idea of the nation, and if you're putting it in in the constitution, and then the con- the constitution that then was amended again, and it was amended on. Uh, not within the different articles of the constitution, but actually the preamble, and I talk about it in the book, uh, the amendments, and I, and I sort of cite the way it, it became, as we know, the constitution starts, we are the nation of so-and-so, this is the country of so-and-so people. But in, Lat- in the Latvian case, it was actually amended to, actually, uh, to completely sort of uh, underline or triple times underline the fact that it's the nation of ethnic Latvians and and lives uh, but nobody else basically right it's it's not the nation of those people who become Latvianized or assimilated into Latvian nations so I think it's it's a very strong point of sort of the use of political language the use of these different powerful discourses but the way these discourses become powerful obviously takes time and it takes the consensus from the people who construct them and that's where the story is, is so important to me and, and in a way it's, it's so exciting to study it is that these discourses are laid out uh, in this sort of behind the closed doors, as I call it, right? In, in, in yeah, power, that's a good in, point. Um, sort of corridors in, in the ministries where the programs, laws and um, sort of integration policies are, are written in the discussions among these politicians. Obviously, it takes into account some you know, feedback and so on and so forth. But it's not um, the way of sort of, uh, you know, encompassing a lot of the alternative ideas that exist in the society, as I show, right? And there is this resistance from from other uh, movements that are not allowed even to, to get elected because the parties just simply do not get um, what is called uh, registered. And I, right. I do have interviews from these politicians in Chapter 4 who are considered radical. One of them is a non-citizen still and is not allowed even to get citizenship according to the Article 25 of the Citizenship Law, which is basically uh, if you were connected to KGB, um, something that you not you will never be allowed to 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 become a citizen. Yeah, that 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 was that was actually sorry that was one of my questions as well. The role of the old communist political elite because there's such a difference between Latvia and Kazakhstan, right? I mean, you argue, and I think rightly that the nationalizing regime in Latvia is formed as a kind of anti-communist dissident movement against Soviet domination and the story of occupation in the post-war period. And, you know, it's different in Kazakhstan. And and maybe you can elaborate on this because you have the consolidation of a communist political elite and then the switch of this nomenklatura um, in, in Kazakhstan. So how does that work? I mean, are, are there communist, say, communist party elites who've made this very smooth transition from communism to nationalism in, in Kazakhstan? 
Yeah, and and um, of course there are divisions because there is the actual the communist uh, party in Kazakhstan, and there are there were two of them. Uh, there are still, uh, and in the in the nineties, the old communist party uh, was very influential, and and sort of the different members of this party uh, were quite strong and active voices in the parliament up until mid nineties, when when sort of the shift happens in Kazakhstan. Uh, and at the time when when sort of uh, the a lot of commentators say that, that the parliament in Kazakhstan was was highly democratic, there were discussions, debates, and so on. Um, and there's this party that was uh, led by uh, late uh, Sergei Bolsonaro, who passed away last year. And then there is another communist party uh, that is currently in the parliament. And usually in Kazakhstan, in the uh, political discussion, these two are very much separated as the. Um, sort of not only as the old and new communist party, but also as uh, uh, pro-government and a non-government um, communist party. And the one in the parliament at the moment is obviously the pro uh, pro uh, regime rather than pro government. Right. Right. And, and yeah, so just just to make like, you know sort of things clear that there is communist party, and then there are communists who then turn into nationalists, which is really uh, different within the regime itself, because the communist party. Uh, slowly becomes disempowered, both of them. Even the one that is currently uh, in the parliament, it doesn't have much voice, it's not really active, it's not really visible in making decision, uh, decisions and sort of, you know, wading their way through uh, building certain, certain meanings and so on and so forth, which is very important, as I say, power is defined by the ability to define uh, the uh, powerful and sort of dominant discourses within the regime and the country. But the communist, you, communist elites you are talking about is precisely uh, the president Nazarbayev himself, who is his. Uh, uh, he was basically born out of the communist nomenclature in the in the Soviet period. He uh, came into power as the first secretary, and then he became the president of Kazakhstan. Obviously, uh, it all changed, and he started talking in a different, slightly different language. Sort of. Soviet past, not the same way as was talked about in Latvia, but nevertheless. Going back to your question also about how do elites become powerful in Kazakhstan, it is also through, in the beginning, it was also through the old sort of uh, nomenclature channels in the way, right? And I talk about right. these elites, in, and I, I think I have a table where, where I sort of discuss who are the, um, this kind of um, members of the elite groups who were uh, old, you know, Komsomol, for example, leaders and so on and so forth in Kazakhstan. But then yeah. um, the shift to sort of post-communist is very uh, different in Kazakhstan as they sort of, and, and I, I think in chapter one, I have this section where I start from the archival uh, note where uh, President Nazarbayev gathers the sort of intellectuals, he gathers prominent politicians in 1992, and he says we need to come up with sort of ideology, but it's not an ideology because we're living in new times. And uh, we're no longer uh, following an ideology because ideology by then became a dirty word, sort of something very associated with bad old past of the Soviet Union. And now we're sort of moving forward to not an ideology, but maybe a national idea, right? And and I think it's and I really wanted to include that sort of uh, historical um, archival note to show how the constructs and sort of like you know how you would still follow similar. Um, how do you call them, templates, but then nevertheless you filling them with, with um, even similar forms of discourse that you provide, but it's already moving forward to become something different. And it's for me, it's, it's, it's a very interesting sort of uh, the long goodbye of post-communism in a way, is that uh, you are mm. trying to say you something new, but you're not dismantling the sort of, you know, um, I don't know how to call it, but you're not dismantling the uh, structure of how it's done. And I thought yeah. for me it was very, very important to illustrate that. It's sort of we're not calling it ideology, but uh, we are meeting here as a committee for ideological, <laughs> uh, you know, decision making. Right. It's not ideology. We're building something else, and I think it's very interesting. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy, and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. 
Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Yeah, and and I I guess I, I think there are two big elephants in the room. I mean, there is there is the EU after all. Latvia is part of the EU, and there is Russia and the whole issue of vertical integration or non non integration in in Russia under Putin. So, what would you say if I can raise like a sort of skeptical question to centrists or modern sort of urban middle-class Latvians, Latvian-speaking Latvians who would say, well, yes, we're European now. We've solved these problems. We we know that there are a lot of pressure from the EU, from the OSCE and so forth about changing citizenship and minorities policy. I mean, how deep is the change given the minority school reform and, and still, as you mentioned, this feeling of, of degradation and humiliation and exclusion for, for monolingual Russians. How, how do you respond to something like that when you're in, in Latvia and, and comparing the two countries? You mean how, how does the Europeanization changes or how? Yeah, how... I mean, what, what, what is the sort of tangible effect of this Latvianization? Is, is it Europeanization or, or is it just what sort of far-rightist Latvians are, are looking for to be able to exclude ethnic minorities from from advancing within the system. I'm not sure if I asked the question correctly, but I, I guess I'm asking how deep is the Europeanization? Do you see Europeanization as nationalization, as a nationalizing regime itself in Latvia? Yeah. Um, so Latvia is definitely a European uh, state. And when I arrived, it was already quite clear. Uh, and I arrived in 2012 for the first time. And you know the signs and everything. You you kind of feel like you know, this is this is Europe. But but uh, the points you are you were talking about in the book are based on my archival research in the OEC and sort of this push and pull uh, discussion, which was uh, absolutely um, um you know sort of treasury hunt for me to to find these these archives and from the nineteen nineties where there was this mission OEC mission to Latvia. And I think it was sort of basically gold for me to to discover it and read all the reports. Right. And, and they, they announced they announced the great improvements and progress yes. and right all of that. Yes, and that's completely from the political point of view. So the way I'm talking about uh, the discourse is how the super far right nationalist uh, movement in in the parliament in the 1990s says that only a few percent of uh, Soviet so-called Soviet era migrants uh, in quotation marks. Uh, should stay in Latvia and the rest should go back to Russia. These are the discourses that was highly pol- political and were discussed, obviously, in the parliament. And then there are, there is, these are cited in the very, again, uh, political realm of, um, you know, letters going back and forth between ministries of foreign affairs or the, you know, um, basically from, from the state officials back to the European Union. But when you're looking at the societal level, and uh, if I understand your question correctly, is sort of how do people feel uh, about these discourses in Latvia? Then obviously for, for a lot of people I spoke to, and uh, I mainly interviewed elites for, for, my, for my study, right. but then I, I did conduct a sort of, uh, small interviews and, and ethnography just to see the, the response in the society. And I mainly focused on, on Russian speakers or Russian sympathetic um, people within my um, realm of sort of Kingarax, which was really important for the study. You And you basically see that, of course, I mean, um, nationalism matters, being independent matters a lot, and people highly um, view this as, as the biggest value in Latvia. There are a lot of uh, opinion polls that are used in the book as well to show that, yes, it's important for them, they're proud of being Latvian and so on. But actually, the uh, obsession with, with, you know, the sacred nation and so on and so forth is not as uh, greatly reflected in the society as the it is sort of discussed in, often in, in clashes and contestations in the parliament, actually. And what matters to the ordinary people 
or um, as I quote one of the elite members in, in Kazakhstan, sort of ordinary folk, right? As he says, is right. the everyday life is the is the economic crisis that uh, you know affects them. It's the problem of um, sort of of basically of what's going on in your everyday life. Can you secure your job? Uh, do you get good health care? Don't look, you know. Do you have the opportunity for your children to prosper in this country, or do they need to become migrants and move? you know, to Ireland or work in Germany and so forth. These mm. are the questions that matter to people the most. Um, Europe, Europeanization obviously is, is greatly felt. Um, they are part, they are the, the nation within the European Union. But I wouldn't say that Europeanization is part of the nationalizing regime because regardless of what changes in the country, and I think that's what was really, was really important for my, for my argument, that despite of the change in parliaments, elections, uh, despite of the political sort of and geopolitical change of becoming the European nation finally, because it was a, a quite a, a contested process and very, uh, I wouldn't say difficult, but a complex process in the 90s. Um, um, but despite all of these changes, the agenda of the nationalizing regime in Latvia is still the same, right? So mm-hmm. and that's yeah. a very interesting and important uh, point and- in that. And, and, and I think it's a good transition to talk about Nazarbayev at last um, in, in chapters four and five. Uh, and both Nazarbayev and Tokayev, I think especially Tokayev, um, objected to the OSCE's missions and the Central Elections Commission. I learned quite a lot from your book, I have to say, um, about the procedures for the nominations of candidates. And, and I found it Absolutely fascinating. So the procedure where um, in Kazakhstan, for example, you must be a citizen of Kazakhstan by birth um, and you have to be an official resident of the country for the past 15 years. So, you know, if you're floating in as an NGO or uh, an American professor, let's say since I'm American, um, teaching at Nazarbayev University, you're obviously excluded from running from off running for office. Um, and you know, there are also things like a language test. You don't have, you have to have a, some sort of background check, I guess, with no criminal record, you need a higher education and you have to be older than 40 years old. So mm-hmm. like I, I, I thought about this as re- in reading your chapters four and five, because often Americans and especially American NGOs, and I consider myself one, have this, you know, sort of imaginary world or, or even like a fantasy that elections are going to solve the problem. If, if we could just have multiple candidates and an open and free election, look at the American election in 2020, then problem solved. The system will magically go away. Um, I, I don't know. This is more of a comment than a question, but like, how, how do you how do you read the experience, which really surprised everyone of 2019 and, and the story of Nazarbayev's um, resignation? How, how, how do you study that with your thesis? Because you did a lot of your fieldwork before the resignation of Nazarbayev. Yes. And of course, it was unexpected. And uh, but it, I think it did not affect as much the argument because I'm talking about more of a conceptual and sort of long-term perspective of how the consolidation of his power happened and how it will continuously influence the way the system will work even after his departure. So when I was writing the text initially, of course, it was far before uh, even any... I mean, there were always... How to put it? There were always sort of assumptions or uh, conspiracies in the way of what's going to happen, um, how will Nazarbayev sort of step... Well, nobody actually... Very few people spoke about stepping down, but what would happen when... when what would happen in the era with, with no Nazarbayev, right? But to me, I mean, uh, first of all, I, I don't do predictions or, um, you know, I don't do <laughs> conspiracy, thankfully. Um, and my discipline is, is slightly about something else. And I don't, whenever somebody asks me, what, what do you think will happen? I always refrain to saying, like, you know, I can't really predict anything. because I study the contemporary. I don't study the future. And uh, the, uh, the way the argument was formed and, and the way it's written is more of, um, you know, the, the 1991 and, and, and forward sort of what happens to the system and how it's formed. And for me, that was the most important thing is sort of he consolidated his power. He constructed the specific nationalizing regime that is uh, falling 
although it is talking about different discourses of nation, uh, inclusive nation or exclusive nation at the same time as it's discussed in chapter three, for example. He's talking about, you know, uh, duolingualism. He's talking about different sort of discourses of what Kazakhstan means in history and, and in the future in, term, in terms of like 2030, which is not uh, that far along now. And, and then um, when he did resign, um, I had to change the text a little bit to sort of talk about uh, the very recent yeah, changes. Yeah, that's, that's my question, too. You incorporate so much from 2019. It's really impressive in, in the book. You. Yeah, sorry. But it was highly unexpected. I, I was like, well, my book is almost, you know, like it, it was, I think it was going to into, um, what's it called, uh, proof, proof stage. And I was like, what, yeah. I'm gonna, what am I going to do? But then I thought, uh, well, you know, actually does not affect the argument that much. I just need to update uh, what, what, what happens. And actually, what you are talking about, there were uh, more or less free and open elections. There were multiple candidates for that matter, right? And they did allow the oppositional candidate to That's run. Right. And I do talk about uh, the movements that, that uh, sort of the elections uh, allow to, to happen. And that those movements of sort of for free elections the very interesting wave of uh, uh, election observers who were local. And a lot of them were televising their uh, observations through Instagram and other social media. That was really an important sort of um, also generational change, right? It's that a lot of these yeah. people who went to observe, who were independent observers from Kazakhstan, these are young people. These are the next generation. I talk about uh, sort of very briefly about these movements and sort of the change that, that is happening. But as you can see, Nevertheless, uh, it d- does not bring to the change of the system. Could 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 you give us could you give us an idea of the wake up Kazakhstan movement? And a yeah. lot of these are, I think, young people. They have hundreds of thousands of followers on on Instagram. But you know, I remember being in Ukraine in 2013 and 2014, 2015, and watching um, from Kiev and, and Lviv, um, and to some extent Odessa. A lot of the influencers and bloggers and activists. And um, it was by using social media platforms. It was by staging alternative political rallies. And could you, could you tell us about this movement? I think it's called Wake Up Kazakhstan. I forget what the original, Oyan Oyan Kazakhstan, Mm -hmm. right? Right. And it's actually, uh, uh, they cite the poem by the Alash uh, Orda movement uh, poet, Amrak Abdulatov. It's a 1919 poem, uh, Wake Up Kazakhstan, where he talks about this sort of, uh, you know, we have to build our state, we have to, you know, build our voice uh, for the future to be heard in the world. And it's, I thought it was a very poetic connection to my first book because I do start with Alash um, and Alash Orda and Mujerak Abdulatov in, in the first chapter of my first book where I talk about literature and modernization and how imagined communities were formed uh, in the 20th century. So this movement is is using that quote, uh, and uh, it's the sort of I call them deinstitutionalized movement. They're not a political party. They're not sort of you know registered anywhere. It's just activists, and uh, it's formed of very young people. Um, so they are very vocal, uh, and uh, sort of they have their own alternative program of building the, the state and how the political development and change should happen. And it's it's very interesting because it's something very unusual for for Kazakhstan politics and the way it was developed even in, t- in the 2000s, where the opposition was always institutionalized. It was always following these formal rules of you know collecting the number of members, having specific uh, regional representations, and even down to collecting the signatures in order to uh, get your party registered. I think you have to have uh, 50,000 signatures, and then this number constantly changes depending on. on um, how the, the rules are working in order to circumvent the political opposition in a way. So this movement is not registered. It's, uh, again, uh, deinstitutionalized, and they are very, um, they use the platform of social media and internet as their sort of... Um, yeah, face, face, Facebook stan, I think, or, or yes. right? I mean, it's one, it's one of the um, it's a well, non-elite platforms, yes. Facebook stan is in the way, or if we could call it like that, and uh, other social media is not purely just used by Oyan Kazakhstan. It's used by other activists, by other commentators as well. So it's a concept in itself of how you can form alternative opinion over something. And it's not always effective because what, what goes on Facebook stays on Facebook, unfortunately. With Oyan Kazakhstan, uh, they are uh, staging unofficial rallies, 
they are sort of meeting sometimes. They had this uh, act, act called Siruyan. Siruyan in Kazakh means just walking. And they used to walk in Almaty sort of, uh, as, as a way of protests and so on. But something still in, in the uh, sort of uh, in the making, and we're going to see in the in the few uh, months or years of how this sort of new form of uh, political engagement will change, how it will affect obviously the what's going on in the country and its politics. Uh, what is important about it is that it is the formation of we can see the formation of alternative voice uh, to what's going on. And to me, as somebody who studied the political scene in Kazakhstan for quite some time, it is definitely something new and um, something we haven't yeah. seen so much in the recent years. I know there were a lot of different movements in the 90s, and 90s were a golden period for all sorts of experiments and political activism in Kazakhstan. But now it's something um, slightly from a different story that we're going to see. And, 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 and this is really my last question about Kazakhstan, and, and we'll move to the big points of your book. So what is that sort of 2019 experience mean for the old ideology of the father of the nation and and Nazarbayev as the I think El Basi is the word right the the guarantor of stability is it are, are there still people of an older generation especially who are adhering to that ideology is it is it now all irony against you know goodbye Lenin it, how how do you how do you read this? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, well, his official departure uh, was an important sort of temporal break that that we're going to study in the coming years. But uh, in a way, you know, he's still present in the political arena. He's not gone, gone yet, right? And I think that's the the sort of the idea of the stability and the father of the nation is still quite. Um, embedded in the society and in the politics. And I do talk about it in the book saying that uh, even after, you know, five years, it would still be sort of something that people would refer to. It doesn't go away by itself. It doesn't diminish by itself. Uh, it, it, you know, obviously we are living in extraordinary times at the moment. Uh, the pandemic um, is something nobody ever expected uh, to happen. And maybe there will the, this crisis that, that will follow uh, and the might change something, but uh, definitely the word. Uh, I mean, based on the uh, on the polls that I had before the 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 pandemic started, it was clear that people were still supportive of that idea. But again, right now we still it's too early to evaluate what's going to happen after we hopefully when we right. are out of this pandemic situation. But yes, he's still present. He's um, I, the idea of the father of the nation is very much present. I, I don't think I would call it an ideology. But it's definitely a discourse and a very dominant still discourse in how the way people uh, construct the political debates, the way politicians themselves construct different discourses. And so referring back to the father of the nation, it's still very present and very important to them. So what would you like to see, having done all of this research, really um, studying over 30 years at least, and, and maybe even back to the Soviet period or back to 1945 into Latvia, would you like to see more research done specifically on Kazakhstan or specifically on Kazakhstan and Latvia? Is there a, is there a Ukrainian path, let's say, or um, what, what, what do you imagine in the world of post, post-communist and post-colonial studies? Yes, definitely. And uh, going back to Ukrainian question, it's really ironic because I did uh, study Ukraine. It's 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 my uh, shadow case that that is still not uh, highlighted, unfortunately, in my publications. But I hope some of that will come out in the nearest future because I think Ukraine is a, is a fascinating case, and obviously it, it does fall into the comparative uh, scenarios and and um, you know under different circumstances it would have been there. But uh, yes, watching. Ukraine from afar was uh, in the past few years was was a bit of a uh, interesting concept, but yeah, um, hopefully I will come back to that. Uh, what what I'm really interested in see- in seeing, obviously, um, is a lot of these different comparative works, and I in my search was inspired by the um, sort of how can we conceptualize this this time and how can we conceptualize this particular space? What sort of uh, theories and contributions can come out of this space that didn't come out yet, and um, what can this region, this super rich, uh, but unfortunately sometimes neglected region, can tell us 
about uh, different socio-political developments, about uh, perhaps uh, very interesting cultural transformations. Um, obviously, in, in, because I'm super interested in that, sort of, uh, is there any way for a particular sociological theory to emerge? And I'm, I'm sure there is. So I'm really looking forward to see this kind of like, you know, breakthrough. And obviously having comparative cases that are very different or having even comparative cases within specific regionalism um, can offer a lot. Um, and um, yeah, I think I think uh, and the field already is showing that with, with certain books, for example, like Eric Kamarat um, on the police reform, where she compares different uh, cases from uh, Kyrgyzstan, Georgia. What what is what is the title of the book for our uh, listeners? Police reform in the post-Soviet space. It's with, uh, okay. Yeah, it, it. I think it was published two years ago by Oxford University Press, but I like I quite like um, studies like that. Or, for example, the works of... Um, I really admire what Marlene Laruel is doing in terms of these uh, large volumes on uh, specific states. Like, uh, there's the yes. Kazakhstan in the making, then there is the book on uh, um, sort of Uzbekistan, there's a book on Tajikistan with different um, authors. I think, I think there are quite a lot of venues, very interesting venues of, of doing that. Um, and as long as it brings sort of this new knowledge and contribution to our understanding and our conceptualization, I think it's very, very important to continue doing that. Well, um, and what are you working on now? What are uh, your current interests? I know you, you've um, been doing a lot of online things, and I see that you had some articles come out recently. So are you working on uh, a new book or a new project? Well, um, yes, uh, I'm always working on, on uh, um, something, but uh, um, my main interest is obviously is on the uh, social theory of power, and I'm very, very interested to sort of uh, continue dwelling on how we can understand power from different perspectives. We have a special issue coming out on that, uh, which is about defining, conceptualizing power in Central Asia. And it's going to be a very interdisciplinary discussion among different scholars from political science, international relations, um, social anthropology, and political sociology by me. So that's where sort of my latest article came out on the conceptualization of everyday life and power in everyday. Yes. So um, also I'm working on um, the, the sort of um, theorization and an analyzation analysis of the state uh, in sort of post-Soviet, not I wouldn't even call it post-Soviet. It's it's just in general. I'm really interested in conceptualizing the state in Eurasia, period, and uh, that. Would, and, and I think that some parts of that sort of questioning and sort of thought process are still present in the in the in this book that that we're discussing now. But I'm really um, looking forward to sort of look into the history of the state building and whether we can. But beyond just very, you know, um, sort of deep-seated Western concepts. Yeah, Bru- Ro- Rogers Brubaker, right? <laughs> beyond, oh. beyond, beyond Brubaker. <laughs> yeah, more or less. But, um, <laughs> and in, in this realm, I'm really interested in sort of looking into uh, more sociological perspective uh, into the state, so into the voices, right. uh, not only elite voices, but also non-elite voices and sort of a different alternative perspective of what does it mean to be within the state by certain people. And then, of course, obviously, it will be about power. So how do people contest power from from above? Uh, and uh, I hope it will be yeah. a very, you know, um, unexpected, but also original type of research that can uh, conceptualize the state and power further in this, in this region, in this space. Yeah. And, and thank you for joining us here, um, Dr. Kudaibergenova. We've been speaking with, on the New Books Network and New Books in History, Dr. Diana T. Kudaibergenova. She is the author of Toward Nationalizing Regimes, Conceptualizing Power and Identity in the Post-Soviet Realm. This book was published by the University of Pittsburgh Press in 2020. I congratulate you for this wonderful book and thank you for joining us on our podcast today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you.